Well, the Beatitudes make for a better world, and they enhance human flourishing. And last week, we started this uh, series, Climbing Higher. We've talked about blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And today, we're going to talk about blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A couple of things to keep in mind about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a section of scripture in which there's a wide variety of different interpretations. There are some that think that it's primarily spiritual and try to apply spiritual uh, components to it. So, for example, they would say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is talking about uh, those of us who are not worthy of God's kingdom, and we realize that and we repent of our sins, we might call that kind of a spiritual application. But in Jesus' setting, where the entire population that followed his earthly ministry were primarily poor economically, uh, the Beatitudes also have this physical component of interpretation that talks about the physical needs of people that are on the margins people that economically need help. And yet, for the type of Beatitudes like we're going to talk about today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's kind of a psychological and emotional component to it. That when we are going through the throes of grief, uh, how is it that we can find hope and how is it that we can find healing when we lost someone or something uh, very dear to us? And I don't think you need to choose one of these. I think that's the mistake that we often make in the teachings of Jesus. We think he meant only one thing. In Jesus' parables, in Jesus' teaching, many times it's like a diamond that has a multifacet to it. And if you look at the light that comes through particular angles of that diamond, what you'll find is that there are different applications depending on who we are, and where we are in the course of our life. So keep these in mind that the Beatitudes can have a physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual component to it. There are only two records of the Beatitudes. One is found in the book of Matthew. That's the text that we are looking at in these days. And the other one is in the Gospel of Luke, which has a different flavor to it. And you're going to see that in a slide I'm going to give to you in a moment. However, we did say in the Gospel of Matthew, there's kind of a base camp that we need to keep in mind in climbing uh, toward these Beatitudes. Number one is this, it is a connection to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God that's found in the other Gospels are kind of synonyms, and it's the idea of God's rule and reign upon the earth. Don't think of the kingdom of heaven as after you die, you go to heaven. It includes that, obviously, but we, uh, we cut ourselves short a little bit if that's the only way we apply it. The first application is God's work and rule in the world in which we live. Secondly, in Matthew's gospel, it's very intentional that the Beatitudes are connected to Jesus as Moses is connected to the giving of the law back in the book of Exodus. In fact, some of the imagery is the same. Jesus goes up upon a mount, and he gives this new law. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that comes later in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we find is some of the visual elements of it is representative of when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and brought the law down. So 
there's Moses that's kind of in the back of the mind of Matthew as he's writing this. Thirdly, it is connected to human flourishing. We talked a little bit about blessed being a word that sometimes is translated happy. Happy are those who mourn. And a lot of times you go, what? How does that work, right? It, it is better to think of blessed as flourishing, as the idea of someone able to overcome those uh, predicaments that we often find ourselves in. So sometimes that includes happiness, but sometimes it includes peace without the happiness. You know, some circumstances are not happy or joyful by any means, but can we flourish in the midst of those circumstances? And I think that's a better uh, rendering or idea of the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. And then finally, number four, it is a counterintuitive announcement of the good news to all the wrong people. You remember last week, I took the Beatitudes, I took the slide, I turned it upside down, and it was difficult to read because that's what the people are hearing. All the people that are blessed, all the people that are fortunate, all the people that have the potential to flourish are all the wrong people, okay? They're not the people that are on the top. They're not the people that already have enough. They're not the people that know uh, where their... Uh, where their gold and their silver is. These are people that are living day to day. These are people that are pushed to the margins. These are people that are very needy of God's healing touch, physical and emotional and psychological. So with that said, this particular beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, has a couple of different elements to it. And the way I would like to look at it this morning is to think about this as an invitation. Um, do not think of the Beatitudes as kind of for privileged people as a way that they can get more than they already have. Don't think of the Beatitudes like that. And it's not a pyramid scheme. This is not a way to level up your spirituality. Rather, it's good news about those who feel forgotten and left out. So how does that pertain to what this particular beatitude is about? Is he simply talking about a group of people who have lost loved ones? Yes, it includes that. But it is also something that applies to a community as well. And so this particular beatitude has an individual application and a community application. And it's not just related to uh, losing someone close that you dearly love. You know, we can mourn, our heart can ache uh, for a variety of different things that we see. I don't know anyone in Israel. I don't know anyone in Gaza. I don't know anyone in Russia. I don't know anyone in Ukraine. But our hearts can mourn for the loss of life. Our hearts can mourn that civilians' lives who should be protected under the rules of warfare are losing their life. We can grieve deeply that our world is the way that it is. And so it has individual applications. It also has a collective application as well. Now, remember I said that 
the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke contain the Beatitudes, but they don't number the same, nor do they have the same emphasis. So the eight Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 are contrasted with only four Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke, but there's the addition of four woes, W-O-E, in the Gospel of Luke. Well, why is that? You see, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is concerned about people, people that are average, people that are on the margins. And so he adds an element of contrast to four of the Beatitudes. In his account, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And then he says, but... Woe to you who are rich, you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, now you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you who, when everyone speaks well of you, for this is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now in the case of uh, the beatitude we're looking at today, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The woe contrast is right here. Blessed are you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. So what is Luke doing? He is kind of giving an element of justice. There's coming justice for those that especially are poor and hungry and weeping and hated. Okay? So that's kind of the contrast between the two writers on how they use the Beatitudes. I don't think Jesus taught this only one time. A good teacher will reuse the same material in different settings. Who knows how many times Jesus gave the Beatitudes? Who knows how many times he taught some of the same things that are found in the Sermon on the Mount? So, blessed are those that mourn. How are we to look at this particular Beatitude? If we take it individually, it might be that moment in time where you had to say goodbye to someone you dearly love. It is someone that you couldn't let go of. It was someone that gave you meaning and purpose in life. It is someone that somehow held your heart in their hands. And it is those individuals that maybe have gone too soon, gone prematurely, It is those type of situations that often brings about a lot of bitterness, doesn't it? Um, It's those type of situations that often cause people to lose faith in God. You kind of get that feeling just a little bit in the text I uh, read to you earlier uh, when Mary and Martha come out to Jesus, right? They're very disappointed that he's doing miracles for everyone else and here is a family that's part of his inner circle, and he wasn't there to intervene, right? And so it's almost as if they're ready to give up, but they choose to hear his comforting words, I am the resurrection and the life. And in a moment, I'll read for you the rest of that paragraph. Collectively, what we find is sometimes mourning becomes a survival skill, doesn't it? You got to get it out because if you don't, it's going to eat you up inside, right? 
it, it, it has damaging effects upon us internally. Well, I came across a very vivid image. In the book of Jeremiah, he is called the weeping prophet, which is interesting designation because he goes through a lot of mourning. Uh, he looks at his own people being taken captive into Babylon and they're going to be in exile, and he knows that they're going to be in exile for an entire generation. And what we find is that he says in chapter 9, verse 21 of Jeremiah, death has climbed through our windows and has entered our fortresses. Isn't that a vivid imagery? That death was outside, and somehow they pried open the window, and they came rushing in and overwhelmed us. It's kind of like an invading army, if you will. Well, here's a commonality that we all have. We all share this. Death has entered the tent of all who traverse this terrain called life. None of us get away from that. None of us have the ability to escape saying goodbye to individuals um, that we dearly love. But there is such a curious dynamic, especially among Christians, how we downplay individuals in mourning. We want to shut them up because we feel uncomfortable, okay? And there's a lot of platitudes. I'll give you a few of them. These are things you should never say, right? Heaven needed another angel. Everything happens for a reason. <laughs> the person that hears that says, well, if everything happens for a reason, can you give me a reason why this happened to my loved one? Right? You know, when you say that everything happens for a reason, you have placed a seed in someone else's soul that's going to drive them nuts. Because they're going to look for a reason and sometimes you can't get one. How about this one? When God closes the door, he will open a window. Have you ever heard that one? Yeah, when you open that window, death comes rushing in, just like Jeremiah says, right? No, no. Make sure to keep busy. Time heals all wounds. Oh, we can't be sad because... He or she or they are in a better place now. The intention might be well-meaning, but the person that hears that is saying, no, the better place is here with me, right? Living and dying are part of the cycle of life. You can't escape that, but sometimes it comes unexpectedly, unjustly, violently, and so forth. And our mortality is never a good fit because we always long for life. And sometimes we have time to prepare ourselves for that and sometimes we don't. But I will say this, that mourning comes at various levels and in various waves. No one gets to say how long mourning is to last in anyone's life. Um... The truth is, we are taught how to acquire things. We are not taught how we lose them. But loss is a part of life. And there comes a point when we can no longer acquire. 
and we have to let go. And yet within religious circles, being impervious to grief and suffering and pain is often portrayed as a spiritual badge of honor that needs to stop. That needs to stop. What should I say? How about something simple? I'm so sorry for your loss. It grieves my heart. Pretty easy. Doesn't remove the tension of mourning, but it's honest. This beatitude tells us that Jesus joins himself with those who mourn. Jesus wept. Mourning looks different for everyone. No two people mourn the same way. But there is a connection between mourning and healing. And I think it's related to hope. Here's how the rest of that paragraph goes. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps. And the Jews say, see how he loved him. But some of them said, they couldn't keep their mouth shut, right? Could he not have opened the eyes of the blind, have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more was deeply moved. He's weeping. The text doesn't say this, but it, it alludes to the fact that he emotionally was a wreck. He comes to the tomb. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. I love the way the old King James translation says, no, 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 he stinketh. <laughs> The NIV kind of <laughs> tames that a little bit. No, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this is for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. Yeah, we mourn individually. Mary and Martha, they mourn the loss of their brother. But there's an element where they were mourning collectively as well. This is a picture here of an artist's representation of a Jewish practice called sitting shiva. And that practice is such that for seven days friends and relatives come to the home of the one that is grieving 
and they sit there and they don't throw around platitudes. They feel the grief together. And as they sit and they feel that grief together, they recite what is called the Kaddish. The Kaddish goes, and I, I won't do it in Hebrew, but magnified and sanctified be the great name of God. There's a lot of things we'll never understand. And as long as I know that there are people that are walking with me and beside me, I don't need to understand. I can go ahead and sit in the mystery and in the moment and understand that we're in this together. And so mourning is an individual thing, but it's also a collective thing as well. And as long as we're very careful with our words, as long as we're very careful with our intentions, we can be part of the healing balm that helps that other person lament. Lament is something that we don't like to give other people the permission to do because it makes us uncomfortable. But there's a whole book of the Bible that's talking about lament. It's called the book of lamentations. <laughs> and Jeremiah is the writer, and he, for five chapters, uses this long poem that just continues to remind his people that God is still there. If you really want to be uncomfortable, some parts of the world, I mean, when grief is going on, they rend their clothes and they weep aloud and they march down the street and make a lot of noise as a protest that something has come through the window that is foreign and unwelcome. The entire book of Lamentations gives voice to collective mourning. And while it memorializes Israel's grief, it gives voice to all of our grief as well. We are seeing the collective mourning of people in Israel and in Palestine every day. And while it might be overwhelming to us, sometimes we need to feel that pain. And we need to remind ourselves that lament is not whining. And we don't need to tell people to get over it. It is the cry of those that see the truth of the world's deepest wounds and the toil that it takes upon the human race. Lament bears witness to all that is not right in the world. I guess grief ultimately unveils what is in our souls. And so where do we find comfort? Blessed are those who mourn, individually or collectively, for they will be comforted. I guess the best I can give to you in this moment is to remind ourselves that Jesus brought the fullness of his humanity into every moment. And he understands what we are going through every moment of every day. Comfort comes in a variety of different ways, but it usually involves someone walking with us through the pain. As I mentioned there, we don't have the ability to take the pain away, do we? But we can help carry it. I guess ultimately, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, 
and the promise of resurrection is still held out in front of us, each and every one of us. I need to remind myself that death ends a life, but it does not end a relationship. And to grieve is to love. If you love someone, you're going to grieve. That's, there's no way around it. But we do have hope. And because we have hope, the best thing that you can hold on to is your memory. Your memory of that person. Your, the memory of the moments that you had together. Your best friend in times of mourning is your memory. A lot of times people, they just want to move on. You've got to sit in those moments and in the memory. Because memory is a way of holding on to the things you love, the things you are currently, and the things that you never want to lose. And so memory becomes this aid to us. It becomes our lifeline in many respects. The life of the lost is placed into the memory of the living until the time when memory is merged with loving reunion. I worked on that last line for a long time because I think that's how we heal. The life of the lost is placed into the memory of the living until the time when our memory is merged with reunion. And that day is coming, my brothers and sisters, right? This life is very short and goes by very quickly. But there is a day when we will no longer need to worry about how life flies by and we will be in the presence of those that we have lost. Let that be your inner strength. 